We have several scriptures this morning, but our primary scripture is Matthew, comes from Matthew chapter 5. If you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 30. He says, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 is our next scripture. says, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. <coughs> then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, 
The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on the bed with the servants of the Lord. But he did not go down to, the, to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field when we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And lastly, from Philippians chapter 4. And we are looking at, I apologize, but I lost my bulletin. 8 through 9, chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. As I began to think about this new Lenten season, I wanted to think about how we could look at Lent in perhaps a new way that wasn't quite so new. 
I want to explain a little bit. On, on today of all days, on, uh, on Daylight Savings Day, this is not the day for me to be obtuse or complicated. I need to uh, talk plainly, not just for yourself, but for me as well. Otherwise, I could lose myself, and then we'll really be in a, really be in a mess. Most of us are aware, at least I want to assume that most of us are aware, that Lent is a preparation season. It's kind of like Advent, all right? If you remember Advent leading up to Christmas, Advent is a preparation for people as they get ready to celebrate the joy of Christ's birth. But it also has a, a eschatological meaning, meaning that it has an end times meaning. Advent, we are also anticipating the day when some way, somehow, Jesus is going to come back into human history and he is going to make all things new. And so that's what Advent is about. And, and Lent is, in many ways, a counterbalance to Advent. They're not opposites, all right? They're more of different points on the same compass. So Lent is for preparation as well. Lent, on the other hand, anticipates the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and ultimately looks to the hope of the resurrection that we have in Easter. Lent is oftentimes associated with penance and remorse for sins, which is appropriate. It is, it is good for us to have remorse over our sins, uh, but even more so that we repent from our sins and change and seek to live a new life. We remember the sacrifice of Christ and that it was sin that caused him to have to be Sacrificed. It was only Christ who could pay the price for our sins. And so it's easy to come into Lent with almost a melodramatic sense of remorse, almost seeking catharsis. If you're not familiar with the term catharsis, it's uh, getting yourself feeling grief in order to feel better. Those of you who have lost loved ones know that sometimes that grief and sadness has a certain comforting quality to it. That's catharsis. Catharsis is not always bad. It's necessary. But if all we do with Lent is make it into a, you know, roughly six-week-long period of catharsis, then we really don't get anywhere in our faith lives. We do need to feel remorse for our sins, but I don't think that Lent should be melodramatic. Too many of us, I think, become complacent in our faith, feeling that we have done what is necessary and we can run the danger of thinking that we don't still have sin in our lives that needs dealt with and washed away. So with this notion in mind, I want to approach this Lenten season from now and through Palm Sunday as an opportunity for us as a church to reflect on where we still fail because we need to be honest, we do still fail and continue to need God's grace in our lives and how Christ shows us an alternative in how to live. And so for this, we will spend the next several weeks reflecting upon the teaching that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> 
It seems that perhaps the greatest spiritual battlefield in the believer's life uh, may in fact be the mind. If you notice the title of today's message is The Battlefield of the Mind. I don't know about the rest of you, but at least for me, it's where I spend most of my time is in my mind. Or the ancients would say in your heart. The ancients didn't really designate between heart and mind. They were considered the same thing. But most of us, I think, probably spend most of our time up, up in our head. We think a lot when we're working and when we're not having to talk. We're in our minds, as it were. And the mind can be the source of great genius and creative beauty and some of the the great and wonderful things that we see in our world. And it can also be the source of utter deviousness and outright evil. So the mind is a very complicated, complex thing. And I fear that too many Christians do not take the battlefield of the mind as serious as it is. In truth, we live in a world where our minds are constantly being bombarded by stuff with ideas, with images, and aspirations that, quite frankly, are not always wholesome and, in fact, can be harmful if we entertain them too far. Yet we give it very little thought. Today I say to you, we have all committed the sin of wasting our minds on that which does not benefit. And our example to learn from today is none other than King David. So... What is going on with King David? It says in the very beginning of the passage, it's the season when kings go out to war. Now in this day and age, those nations that are led by a king or queen, generally they don't go out and lead the armies with them. We don't see Queen Elizabeth II out with with the military. Although what I will say about Queen Elizabeth II is during World War II, she was in the military and she repaired... um, Military vehicles, something that a lot of people don't know about. But the primary job of a king in ancient times was to be the primary war leader of the people. It was his job to protect the people. He was in charge of the military. In peacetime, he handled the administrative tasks. But in wartime, it was his obligation, it was his duty as king. It's like, you know... Today we say it's good to be the king, but you know, if you're wearing the crown and there's a war going on, well, it may not be quite so good to be the king because you're supposed to be out there fighting. But what does it say that David's doing? His army is out to war, but he isn't. He's staying at home. My mom used to tell me a saying that her grandmother uh, told her, and that was that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. When we spend too much time in our minds and not enough time doing what we're supposed to be doing, what ends up happening is we start to think a little too much and we start to get ideas that maybe are not quite so good. And that is essentially what I think is going on with David. David is up on his roof and he's looking out from the top of the palace, which is not too unusual. But I can kind of imagine himself talking to himself, saying, Self, I've got it pretty good here, and I kind of like it here, and I'm glad that I get to stay in my palace and not have to sleep out on the hard, cold ground with the rest of my men. And suddenly, what does he do? He turns and he looks, and he sees a woman taking a bath on a rooftop. Now, there have been some 
uh, that have tried to criticize Bathsheba for taking a bath on the rooftop, thinking that, he, that she was trying to seduce David. My understanding is, is that this is inaccurate because it was normal to take a bath on your rooftop. And if David was the kind of man he should have been, he should have respected the lady's privacy and not been looking around. But he doesn't. He does, in fact, look around. But even at this point, he has not quite gone as far as sin. Instead, he begins to think. And, and this is where the Bible doesn't really explain it, but obviously, David begins to think. And he begins to have a thought, and he decides to act upon it, and he calls her up. We all know what happens next, and ultimately, she gets pregnant. And so now David has another problem. And he begins to think. And what does he end up doing? Does he go and confess his sin and make right? No. Instead, now he comes up with something new. First, he hopes that Uriah will come home and go to his wife and that he'll be able to pull off the old trick, say, oh, yeah, it's, it's his. No. Uriah doesn't do this because he's a good soldier. He says, it's not right for me to go home and, and spend time in my comfortable house while the rest of the men are at war. Maybe Uriah is giving a little bit of polite criticism to his king here at this point. Because again, the king's job, he's supposed to be out in the field with his men. But instead, he's in his comfortable house. Uriah, when he comes home, does he go to his comfortable house? No, he sleeps out with the men. So now David comes up with an even worse idea. He decides, you know what? I can't kill him myself, but maybe since there's a war going on conveniently, I can have him sent out where things are not going real well and maybe he'll get killed. And then I could just say, oh, that's just too bad and then move on. And that's exactly what happens. Ultimately, because... He let his mind go where it shouldn't go. He ended up contemplating and acting upon how to kill a loyal military commander. Someone who was supposed to be his friend. In my opinion, Jesus' words in Matthew seem to address this very situation. Jesus says, if you contemplate anger and violence, it's just as bad if you do anger and violence. Now, why does he say this? Because anger and violence starts in the brain. If we think angry, violent thoughts, then if we do it long enough, we are going to do angry, violent things. You know, we wonder why we have such a problem with violence in our country. I don't want to get into the political debate of, of gun control and all, but where violence really begins is in the brain. People begin to think, I'm angry. What do I want to do about it? They dwell on their anger and it turns into real violence. Contemplating, contemplating deceit leads to deceit. If you think of ways to cheat and scheme and, and get away with things, then what's going to happen? You're going to become a cheating, scheming person. And Jesus gives a very stark, very stern warning here. He says, look, it'd be better if you gouged out your eye, if your eye causes you to begin to think sinful thoughts, then for the whole of you to be thrown into hell. 
Some translations don't get quite so explicit, but quite frankly, he's talking about the garbage heap of Gehenna, which is a really nasty place. He's talking about the place of refuse. In our world today, there is a lot of wasted time and a lot of wasted minds. I don't mean necessarily explicitly uh, wasted on drugs, but that suffices too. The old saying is garbage in, garbage out. So much of what we spend using our minds on is vain and unbeneficial at best, and oftentimes it is in fact quite harmful to us and others. Used to, it was television that was the main medium by which we got most of our bad ideas. Nowadays, the internet is more prolific, I would say. So much of what we spend our time on isn't helpful to us. From the entertainment that we choose to coveting of things. You watch commercials are entirely about coveting. All right. Thankfully, I don't get that many commercials anymore because we don't have regular television. But, um, you know, there's a reason why one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. Our whole economy is based on coveting, meaning wanting that which you don't have. And it's something I have to be very careful with myself because I have a little bit of what they call obsessive compulsive disorder. And along with that goes, I, I tend to be a collector of things. You talk to my... Wife, she, she will tell you that I collect things. And it's very easy to collect things, but then always be saying, oh, but I don't have that one. Oh, but I don't have that one. And it can lead into a never-ending spiral of constantly wanting something else. I think of the, the one that comes to my mind is the burger commercials that seem to be other. You know, they have... Picture of this ginormous sandwich on the television. What happens after you look at that sandwich long enough? You know, some of you may think, oh, that just looks nasty. But for a lot of us out there, and it's... The, the proof is that they keep selling hamburgers, so apparently it works. The longer you look at that hamburger, the more you start thinking, you know what, I think I might want a hamburger. Subliminal messaging. It's telling you this is what you should want. And what happens whenever your brain starts to think, oh, maybe this is what I want eventually act upon it. Now, in the case of a hamburger, you have a few of those. It's not a big deal. But if you eat one of those every day of your life, you have a coronary. And then, uh, then God's not going to be very happy with the way you treated your body. But there's even worse things than that out there. Pride and selfishness, all of these things begin in the mind. They start with the things that we take in and allow ourselves to ruminate on if you want to know the meaning of the word ruminate, it's what a cow does whenever they're chewing their cud. They just work it over and work it over and work it over and work it over. And that's what happens when you get a bad thought in your brain. It just keeps working over and working over until you end up doing something not good. We wonder why our society and our communities are in the shape that they're in. It's because we sit around and ruminate on the things that we don't need to be. Even spending time thinking on what we want too much results in us not acting as servants. And that is the purpose of the mind that God has given us, is for us to be able to think of ways that we can love and help each other and love God. 
See, the end point of all of this, and I'm going to end, is that this mind of ours is not ours to waste. I think a lot of times we can think it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm entitled to do whatever I want with my brain as long as I'm not doing something bad outwardly. It's like, no, Jesus is saying the thoughts that we have matter. The mind that we have is a gift from God, just like anything else. It's all from God, and so we should be using our minds daily to think and act on serving God and others and witnessing God's goodness to the world. And so let me begin to wrap it up here really quick. If the battlefield of the mind is a battlefield, and I say that it is, we must equip it in such a way that the enemy cannot use it for his own devices. And Paul gives us some suggestions on how to do this. He says whatever is true and holy and upright and pure and attractive and of good reputation, virtuous and praiseworthy. In other words, if it meets those criteria, then it's good. And you can let it into your mind and you can work it over. You can ruminate on those things because hopefully if you ruminate on those things, you'll do good things. It means that if we want to be truly faithful disciples, we should not allow our time and minds to be taken up with the things that lead us into sinful thought patterns, but instead focus on the things that Paul mentions. And if we need to get even plainer here, we can say scripture, uplifting entertainment, because not all entertainment is bad. I'm not one of those that says all entertainment is bad, but be judicious in the entertainment that you choose. Positive behavior, positive uh, hobbies, Things that give us reason to celebrate. Things that exercise the brain in a positive way to where we think more clearly and we're able to be more creative in positive ways. Let us confess to God today the areas that we have not used our minds for, for that which is good, and pray and ask him to lead us to positive uses of the mind. Because when we win that war, only then do other victories become possible for us. And that is where we will go in the coming weeks. Amen. As we come to the end of our service today, our closing hymn is, O Master, let me walk with thee.
comes from the evil one. And that will um, be reading from James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and it's itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Alrighty. Well, as you can probably tell today, um, based on the title of my sermon and the scriptures that we read and the children's sermon, we're going to talk today about the words that we use. And if you'll remember, we are in a Lenten series right now, dealing with the areas where we as God's people still fail because we're human beings. And we need to continue to seek God's grace to help us be more and more like Jesus. And as I mentioned to the kids, there is this old saying that says, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that's a load of rubbish. It is an utter load of rubbish. Any of us who have been around long enough are well aware of how badly words can hurt. Sometimes words hurt worse than physical pain, depending on the situation. It's interesting, I think, that within the scriptures where we find Jesus addressing the sins of the mind, because again, if you remember last week, we started with the the beginning of conquering these sins is starting in the mind. We have to let God have control of the way we use our mind to begin with. And where Jesus is talking about anger and lust and these other things that begin in the mind and in the heart, we also find worked in there the sins of words spoken to do harm. That's the reason why we have a little bit of repetition in the scriptures this week. If the mind is where sin and hurtfulness is conceived and created, then the mouth is the gun through which the hurtfulness of the mind is most often unleashed. As we look at our scriptures today, we can get an idea of how hurtful words can be. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount makes clear the origin of hurtful words and his brother James in his epistle makes clear their destructiveness. 
So, as I said, I, I kind of repeated some scripture this week, and a lot of it's because what seems to be clear here, at least to me, is that Jesus is making the point that words of anger and hurt naturally spring forth from angry and hurtful thoughts. We say angry and hurtful things because we let angry and hurtful things ruminate in our brain. The other point on words that Jesus talks about is the issue of lying and the truth. Words do not necessarily make a thing true. And in times past, and even in our courts today, what do they do when they bring someone in? They say, do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. They make you swear on God's name. And Jesus actually discourages that because oath-speaking is in vain. And why is this? Well, first of all, he goes through this explanation that generally the things that people swore upon were things related to God, either God himself or talking about Jerusalem or the temple being like God's footstool, the heavens being where God resides, and, and things like that. And he basically says, look, you can swear something to the moon and back, and if it's not true, it's still not true. Saying it's by God or by heaven or by Jerusalem or the temple, if it's a lie, it's still going to be a lie. So, and if you tell the truth, then all that oath speaking doesn't really matter because you've said what's true anyway. So, where we're getting into here is issues dealing with truth and lies. And these things are interrelated, hurtful words and lying, because if we read the news enough, which I try not to do too much anymore, what we find is lying hurts people. It destroys reputations. It destroys people's lives and families. Lies cause real damage to people's lives. And Jesus is very clear that anything other than the truth, he says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, in other words, the truth, anything else is, he says, from the Satan, the evil one, the deceiver. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the devil as the father of all lies. So see, this is why he would say, anything other than the truth is from the evil one, because it's a distortion of reality, a manipulation to try to Get something the way you want it to be. Because when people lie, people lie in order to benefit in some way. Maybe the benefit they're trying to drive is hurting someone. Maybe they're trying to make money. We, we've seen in the last 20 years the downfall of many businesses because of lying in business. People that are not honest in business. And um, I think Bernie Madoff is still in prison. I know that was probably 10, 15 years ago. But uh, people who distort the truth for benefit, it causes damage. And, and we can see the damage it caused. We had a long recession in many ways as the result of, of lies because people lied. Millions of people lost jobs. Houses were foreclosed on. So lies do cause damage. 
Jesus' brother James in his letter, the book of James. And uh, the book of James is kind of a favorite of, of Methodists because when some Christians try to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you know Jesus, it's like, well, if you know Jesus, James would say, if you know Jesus, then you should behave like it. And that's a lot of what, uh, what James is about, is saying, look, we can say we believe in Jesus all we want, but if we don't act like someone that believes in Jesus, then, I mean, James even says the demons in hell know who God is and they're afraid to death. James describes the tongue as a flame that can set the world ablaze. And it's true. If we think about the destruction that hurtful words and, and lying can do, it's very true. When I think about the situation in our world today, and one of the things I'll kind of throw out there, if you notice that, you know, those of you who are friends with me on Facebook, I'm not, you know, not everybody has Facebook, but those of you who are friends with me on Facebook, I've gone inactive on Facebook for Lent because I'm giving up social media for Lent. And I can already feel in two weeks, I feel so much happier and better for it. And I'm not sure if I'm ever going to go back. But if, if any of you who are on Facebook at all know that no one has a personal mute button anymore. Whatever somebody thinks, they bleh, spit it out onto whatever social media platform of their choice is. And those of you who have seen it, people get to arguing and it can get pretty ugly. Social media in particular has gotten particularly mean-spirited. And I, I hate to say this, but uh, it grieves me and it makes me sad, but it's, it's the truth. In the last six months, the worst place I have seen for social media is the Illinois Great Rivers Conference of the United Methodist Church's Facebook page. As we built up to this big general conference in St. Louis, the things that were being said back and forth on our denominations. Facebook page was the worst out of anywhere. I, I mean, I could go to any secular Facebook page and it'd not be anywhere near as bad as a church group. That's awful. That's wrong. Our previous election, this last general conference, all of these things are examples of how nasty, and, and, and this is regardless of political persuasion, theological persuasion, because it's on all sides, how nasty people can get with their words. People are sent to prison today for lies that are spoken against them, and people go to prison for the lies that they say. I'm also reminded, especially with the children that are here today, of the, stat, the sad truth and statistics of the impact of lying, or I'm sorry, of, of bullying in schools today, and sadly, the number of children that end up taking their lives because of bullying. Anyone who says that words can't hurt must be very sheltered. And as I said, some of the worst out there are supposed to be Christian. Jesus' brother James says, this shouldn't be so. 
And it's right. He's right. He says out of the same mouth we pray to God and then say terrible things against our friends and family members. And it's not right. Jesus says of hurtful words that we should go and make it right with our brother or sister. If we have hurt someone with our words, we should go and make it right. Do, do what is necessary. Our blurb for today says, be careful with your words. Once they are said, they can only be forgiven and not forgotten. It's very true. And I, I know this from my life of horrible things have been said to me that I can never forget them. I can forgive. And that's one of the things that might be a topic for another sermon series is you, forgiveness and forgetting are two different, two different things. And I've had some people uh, in our churches talk, ask me about that before. If, if you have to forget to truly forgive, and no, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. So, because there are some cases you won't forget. And, but the comfort is that you can forgive. And you can be free of that pain. But we need to, in the cases where we have caused hurt, we need to be willing to go and seek out those we have hurt to make things right. Anyone who has lied for personal gain at another's expense needs to let the truth be known and repay what is owed. Because Jesus also says the truth will set you free. Sometimes the truth is hard, but it's easier to live with the truth than a lie. Seek out those who are the victims of words and lift them up and don't let them be a victim anymore. If you have been a victim, let forgiveness in your heart and don't let the violence continue. God gave us mouths to bless others and worship and praise him. Open yourself to God's saving grace that your words may be used to build, strengthen, help, and heal. And with God's help, all of us can do that. Amen.